was wondering what that song was about, and now we know. <laughs> the uh, wildfire smoke's been around a lot longer this summer and autumn than anybody anticipated, and so our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, started wondering about how that affects the geologic history around here. Felix is brought to us by... Lake Washington windows and doors. You've been out taking core samples or something? Yeah, I've been talking to people who've done that. You know, as if the daily effects of the smoke and ash weren't enough. I went in search of history, but instead found some bad news, but some possible good news about the future. Dr. Andrew Fountain, he's Professor Emeritus at Portland State University. He's a glaciologist who studied mountain ice around here for more than 40 years. He told me that compared with a lot of other study areas, his field is relatively young. It's been an area of active study since about the 1950s. That's when it really got going after World War II. Prior to that, people were kind of looking at glaciers every so often. Uh, the occasional university professor, uh, hiking clubs would, would kind of monitor glaciers. But since World War II and the rise of modern science uh, and the science establishment, that's when glacier studies really took off. So that's pretty new. And uh, one of the other scientists in this region who's looking at the ice record to study changes is Dr. Susan Kasperi. She's a professor of geological sciences at Central Washington over in Ellensburg. She's on sabbatical in Norway, which is where I reached her late last night. Now, Dr. Gasperi has studied ice cores taken from the South Cascade Glacier. That's in the Cascades west of Stahican. And USGS took a big sample there in 1994. Now, Dr. Gasperi dated the ice at the base of that sample to the 1840s, which is coincidentally right about the time when the non-indigenous population around here started to really grow. Now, that core sample was 158 meters long and 10 centimeters in diameter. That's a big, long piece of ice. They used just a narrow slice to do the study, and Dr. Kasperi said the core shows increases in black carbon that you'd expect, the smoke from railroads and other industrial activity that really got going in the late 19th century, and then that increased throughout most of the first half of the 20th century. Then when they started changing the kinds of fuel they were using, moving away from coal and wood, that meant generally decreasing black carbon by the 1960s. But that ice, says Dr. Kasperi, also shows evidence of previous wildfires. All through the record, it's punctuated by these large peaks in black carbon that are tied to when there have been um, wildfires. Uh, but in the more recent part of the record, we see uh, an increase um, in black carbon concentrations that's tied to wildfire activity combined with you know, more melt on the glaciers that's causing basically the black carbon's not spread out over as much snow. And so you end up with higher concentrations. So it's a little complicated around fluid dynamics and, and that sort of stuff. But what she said there at the end, that's the troubling part about what ash can do to snow and to glaciers. This is Dr. Andrew Fountain again from Portland State. Smoke definitely affects the glaciers. Uh, the, the smoke itself, particularly the ash part, the larger particles fall on the surface. And because they're quite dark, they're black carbon, they absorb a lot more solar radiation than regular dust particles do. It causes the snow to melt much faster. And it causes the ice to melt much faster. And we've all experienced that something dark gets more sunlight and warms up and the ice melts. Now, the really bad thing is that the accelerated melting effect of ash, it's not always contained to just the year or the particular summer or fall that it's really smoky. Winter comes the snowpack builds up again and then the next summer as that snowpack melts and reaches say the past year's layer which occasionally happens you sometimes you lose all your snow cover now you have all this dark material sitting there so even though the current year isn't being affected by fires the snowpack is still being affected by the previous year's forest fires 
because the particles are sitting there melting the snow much faster. So it just goes on and on. The effect is not just the choking on the smoke and ash now. It's having an effect this year and next year as well, and maybe even in the future. Now, generally speaking, um, the effects of ash from naturally caused wildfires, you know, back in way back in time, that was on snow and glaciers. The effect was, was sort of negligible. In this more modern era, when climate change means glaciers are already receding more rapidly than anyone thought possible, the effects of the ash are compounding what's already underway. Now, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, Dr. Andrew Fountain says that after well-documented temperature increases in the 19th century and early 20th century, it may have been changes in ocean currents in the Pacific not long after World War II, which resulted in something that sounds like either a a Miles Davis album or a furniture store, the mid-century cool period. You hit the 1950s and the glaciers stopped receding. And in fact, in some cases, they advanced slightly. And this is really well documented. You go back to the literature and people are saying, hey, the glaciers are advancing or, hey, they're staying pretty steady. And that's called the, the mid-century cool period. And the, the reasons for which they, they're not really clear on what happened. But the thing is, this can happen, that things can cool a little bit and the glaciers can either stabilize or advance a little bit. And that's, a, what, that's kind of what we want, right? Uh, for a lot of different reasons, not just for the glaciers. So this is possible. So, you know, we don't have control over the ocean currents, of course. And so Dr. Fountain says it's a matter of whether we have the political will in terms of reducing carbon and methane emissions to bring that kind of scenario back that we saw, you know, in the mid-century cool period. Um, and one thing I learned that was interesting about this is the oldest ice in the Pacific Northwest probably only dates back to about 1700. You have other parts of the world where the glaciers are really ancient, go way, way back. Here, there's a lot of throughput of, of ice and snow each year. So those glaciers are only, I mean, I say only, like 350 years old, something like that. So before that, they didn't exist, in other words. The mountains were naked. No, I think the, there was throughput. Like that ice just keeps, uh, it accumulates and then melts and then it, it didn't accumulate back thousands of years. It just was always, yeah. the fluid's always moving through. And the, the, there's a lot of fluid dynamics and compression where the stuff is getting pushed out at the bottom. So we don't have like thousands of year old ice. We have only hundreds of year old ice in the Cascades, if, if I understand correctly what uh, Dr. Fountain told me. Okay, but it sounds like he's, he's sort of throwing us a life ring here that he, he doesn't dismiss the idea that there might be some sort of spontaneous mid-century cooling ahead of us here. This is not just a, a relentless march towards, you know, uh, unpreventable sea level rise and inundation. It sort of feels that way. But 70 years ago, when this mid-century cool period happened, we weren't as far along as we are now in terms of the other climate change. So there's lots of factors, but the stuff we can control, we need to control more. That's the basic, basic premise. Our historian in residence, Felix Bonneau, all his features are at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Joining us now is the author of Confidence Man, Maggie Haberman. You uh, have had the honor of uh, knowing Trump for a long time. You were first, uh, he first tweeted at you in, in 2012. In these midterm elections, we're being told that democracy is at stake and that if uh, Trump's candidates win, he would most likely uh, run for office. First of all, do you think that is uh, something that could happen? Well, I think that he's first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I think that he is likely to run for office regardless of how his candidates do. Mm -hmm. I think that given the investigations that are taking place right now, I think he believes that he has to run. uh, And he has backed himself into something of a corner, whether he wants to or not. So I would separate out the question of what happens in 2022 in terms of what it means for Trump 2024. Has to run. What do you mean? Uh, I think that he believes that and and to be clear, I'm not saying I think this is true because I don't. He has suggested to people that he thinks that it will be harder for the Justice Department to 
indict him for anything if he's a candidate. Uh, and, and it, you know, if they did, it gives, it gives him a, a cudgel to use to claim that it's politically motivated. Again, I, I don't think that's going to be as easy as he thinks it is, but, um, but that's the argument. So has to run for his own protection. Correct. Wow. Uh, if he were to win, based on how, how well you know him, would it be a new, kinder, gentler Trump as part of the effort to protect himself? Or would it be the same thing we saw before? It would be the same and, and possibly more intense. I mean, look at his social media site. He's been posting, you know, anti-Semitic comments about U.S. Jews. He's been attacking a Colorado Senate candidate because the person made mildly distancing statements to try to get some distance from Donald Trump, you know, in a, in a swing state. Uh, I think you can expect a lot more of what we saw before. Okay, so if Trump's not going to change, and apparently he's not, then it comes down to his his supporters. You, you were talking to a lot of stations on this book tour. When you talk to the conservative leaning stations, what what do they ask you? Do they do they push back on the stuff in your book, which is meticulously footnoted, by the way? Well, How- thanks. Um, I haven't heard a ton of conservative pushback on the book, to be honest. Um, you know, and, and and I'm not sure that I will. I, I think that you know, with the exception of a couple of people like Sean Hannity. I think a lot of conservative hosts are are somewhat, you know, tired of Trump or believe that he's bad for the party. Now, I don't think that they will say that if he runs, but I think that's how they view it now. And how do you assess Trump's current level of support among the electorate? Well, uh, in a, it, it depends on which poll you're looking at, but you know, he, he still has a sizable amount of support. He's still hugely influential within the Republican Party. I don't know how he would do um, in a national race um, for president. I, I think he remains a strong contender in a Republican primary. I don't know what it looks like with his legal challenges, but he's, you know, he still has a lot of support. As you were watching this uh, unfold and even seeing, you know, yourself personally dragged into this because of your relationship with Trump, did you come away with any doubts about the the checks and balances of our system? Um, so just in terms of relationship, Trump is just a subject who I cover, you know, mm-hmm. the same as I have covered. I covered Hillary Clinton. I covered Rudy Giuliani. I covered Mike Bloomberg. I covered three presidents at more of a remove. Um, he is just somebody who experiences and engages with media coverage differently than than any of those figures. Uh, you know, I, I think that 2016 showed and I said this publicly at the time the limits of institutions in this country. I think that most institutions held despite being tested significantly. I think what you're seeing now in 2022 is a whole lot of systems being tested simultaneously in various states. And I don't know what that ends up looking like. But he tried throughout his presidency to install people who were loyal personally to him. And uh, yep. I mean, in my opinion, we lucked out because a, a lot of those people said, uh, uh, we, I, have a, I have a country to protect here, not just this this one man. In a second Trump presidency, would he have learned from that? Would he, Is he going to come in armed with a stable of people who, in fact, will swear their loyalty to him and forget about the consequences? I think that that will be his goal in a lot of cases. I don't know how many of them can get confirmed by the Senate for some of these jobs. Um, you know, I've, there, there is there are still systems that run checks, but there's no question you hit on, I think, the key here. It's not that Donald Trump learned anything about how governance works or about the government. He learned he is obsessed with personnel 
and I think that would be his key focus going into 2025. Right. You can still you can certainly see this unfolding in the uh, number of appointees in the court system, the way he seems to be yep. court shopping, right, for people that he thinks will be loyal to him. Correct. Uh, so That's far, it, it looks like the <laughs> never did I think I'd be uh, you know rooting for the deep state, but I mean, in a way, that's where a lot of us are. But for the deep state, we would have gone off the uh, the deep end here. So, uh, I mean, this is, of course, Congress's job. That's why we have checks and balances. I would say that it's not just the so-called deep state. You know, Mike Pence and his chief of staff were not part of the deep state, mm-hmm. but they did end up saying no at a pretty consequential moment. I think there were a lot of individuals who acted in ways that they knew were going to be of personal risk at key moments. Now, they didn't always, um, you know, they, they, you can take issue with other acts they took, but I think that it ultimately, there there were a bunch of individuals who did things to try to protect uh, institutions and uh, and the country. Maggie Haberman, the author of Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Maggie, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Seattle's Morning News. Attorneys for the state and for the parents of Susan Cox Powell were in court again yesterday in the ongoing legal battle over the murder of their grandsons. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Hannah Scott. Hannah. Good morning, Dave. Uh, this is the latest in the saga of Chuck and Judy Cox's lawsuit against the state, against DSHS, for their murder, murder of their young grandsons, Charlie and Braden, who were five and seven, back in 2012 by their dad, Josh Powell, who at the time was uh, considered a person of interest in the disappearance and presumed murder of their daughter, Susan Cox Powell, and who they really spent years fighting to try to keep the kids away from because they believed he was dangerous. They tried to warn everyone they could uh, about that danger. And in the end, uh, on a supervised visit, I believe his first or near the first supervised visit, he was awarded with these boys on Super Bowl Sunday in 2012. He brutally murdered them in the home and set the house on fire, killing all three of them. So during the trial, this finally went to trial back in February 2020, uh, was put on hold because of the pandemic momentarily and then resumed back in March of 2020, and during that trial, the jury heard emotional testimony from Chuck Cox about the moment he arrived at the home engulfed in flames and rushed to talk to a firefighter. I asked him if the boys were in there, and he, and he said yes. I was thinking I tried so hard to keep them safe. I tried to do everything. I did everything that I was asked, and, and more so, and I told everyone I could tell of my fears and the danger and still here I am looking looking at this building and powerless to save the boys. And Cox also recalled his warning to the social worker just two days before the boys were killed. I warned her that I was afraid that he would do something to the boys that that they were not safe and and that supervision of of the lady that came picked him up was just not going to be sufficient and she she told me don't worry about it we got this they'll, they'll we'll have people there 
Now, when they this trial concluded back in 2020, the award from the jury was was huge. It was at first 115 million, and then due to technicalities, that ended up being about 98 million, essentially close to 50 million in damages for each of the two boys. And that was later reduced just a couple of months later by a judge who felt it was uh, just too high. It was it was that the jury had acted with emotion. So during, this is an appeal, counter appeals. Yesterday is what they were arguing. The state wants uh, so that was reduced to 33 million. That those damages. Now the state wants the case tossed altogether. They're citing some jury instructions that were wrong and still that the jury was emotional in its decision with that judgment. But the Cox family attorneys are counter appealing. They want the entire damages put back into place because they say that, you know, the murder of two young boys is going to be an emotional decision and there's no legal problem with that. Now, during yesterday's appeal arguments, judges asked the Cox family attorney what evidence there was to support such high damages in this case. The jury was asked to consider the pain, suffering, anxiety, emotional distress, humiliation, and fear that these boys experienced as a result of the manner in which they were murdered. And she said that the argue, argued that the evidence in this case speaks for itself. The state delivered two young children in their custody to their father's remote rental house. He pulled them inside, locked the door, and attack them with the brutality that is unimaginable. And they would have seen that happening to each other. He lit the house on fire and they died from carbon monoxide poisoning and the house exploded. The state concedes that that ordeal lasted for 22 minutes. They were conscious for nine minutes. So this is the question before the jury. Was that manner of murder sufficiently painful? Did that manner of murder provoke enough anxiety, emotional distress, and humiliation? Were those boys in sufficient fear? 12 people said yes. I would submit to you that the only answer to those questions is yes. Now she went on to say that leaves the only legal question is the amount of time that those boys were aware of what was going on. And that's what leads to uh, the legality of this appeal is, is whether that's sufficient enough to amount to these level of damages. And they say yes. Uh, no no uh, indication on when a decision might come in these appeals. So we're waiting for now. It's just just for the judge to decide or this goes this is before jury again. Uh, before, well, it depends. The judges could decide uh, in favor of the state, in which case they would get an entirely new trial in the Pierce County Superior Court system, or they could just reinstitute the damages as they were. And I want to be clear that Chuck Cox in no way uh, is looking for this big payout. He wants and has always wanted to hold the state and DSHS accountable. I mean, I, as someone who covered this at the time, I can tell you that he screamed at the top of his lungs from the courts to the social workers to anyone, the police, anyone who would listen, that this was going to happen. Yeah. That, that, and, and nobody listened to him. And he wants to make sure that there are changes in the system, which, to be honest, I don't know that there are yet. Hannah Scott. Thank you, Hannah. You bet. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Baird. Neighbors stepped in to help a Minnesota farmer and ended up saving him in more ways than one. John Lordson with CBS Minnesota reports. On August 15th, Scott Legrid was driving to do some work at a gravel pit when a dog ran into the road. He swerved quickly, lost control, and ended up rolling his truck several times. Broken right collarbone, punctured and collapsed right lung, seven broken ribs on the left side. Those were just some of his injuries. He spent weeks recovering at the Mayo Clinic. But while he was rehabbing, his neighbors were plotting. After the St. Peter tornado, he was up there 
after the flooding in Grand Forks, or he was up there and helped. Fellow farmer Tim Steyer has always admired Scott's willingness to volunteer. So Tim and other farmers decided to do something special for their neighbor. Were you surprised that so many people wanted to step up to help Scott? No, not a bit. This, this, this is farm country. The generosity started right away, right away. On Tuesday, neighbors showed up with combines, trucks, and grain carts and made fast work of Scott's soybeans. They harvested about 240 acres in about four hours. That would have taken Scott a week to do on his own. What made it even more special is they did the exact same thing for Scott 11 years ago after his dad passed away from cancer. It's pretty amazing, you know, these people are taking time out of their busy schedule. This is the busy time of the year for us farmers. Patience plays a big part. Faith plays a big part in getting through something like this. In Faribault County, John Lordson, WCCO 4 News. 748 and now, direct from the Gian Ursula show, here he is, fresh in from his commute. G. Scott. Hey. hey but my commute, I just want to say this. I know I'm always starting off the show. SMN is the reason why that my commutes are so peaceful. Mm-hmm. And I was saying to myself, self, there is no way in the world that I can listen to myself early in the morning. What do you mean? Because uh-uh, uh-uh. I would be too much. Oh, no. Mm. You guys are so fun, though, on the G and Ursula show. I'm, I but that's nine. You that's nine. You've that's been true. up. You've had a couple cups of, you know, coffee. Tea. Tea. tea? Yeah, herbal tea. Herbal tea. tea. Yeah. Do you ever put something in your tea? Uh, I put a one packet of Domino's sugar. Yeah. Domino's? Have you ever have you ever put some like some you know you know Dave something oh, something you mean in your medicine like made a hot toddy or so, something? Yeah, not on the job, G. No. <laughs> Perhaps the day. late at night at home during the holiday season. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Dave, would hey. you ever invite me over for a dope oh. beverage? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I have a friend down the street. We, uh, t- uh, of course, you have we, a sample, <laughs> we sample whiskey once in a while. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I don't tell anybody about it. All right. What's but up? You can come if you want. What would you make Dave drink, by the way? Hennessy. Hen- <laughs> Dave. Dave. Look, that's it right there, bro. Let me introduce Let's- myself. <laughs> <laughs> you and I sit down with some Hennessy. Mm. And go online shopping for shoes. <laughs> No, I, first of all, I'm a I'm a Lagavulin man, and uh, Ooh, he oh, he fancy, huh? Yeah. Do you come from Louisiana? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> no, that was a song. You fancy, oh, I huh? Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> Say, I was going to ask you about your your uh, Netflix affliction. Okay, I'll be chilling. Go ahead. Okay. Apparently, Netflix is now going. Do you share your password? Not anymore. I used to. You know, Not well, with, with all the you know, all the kids and everybody, you know what I'm saying? It, one person got the Netflix, everybody got the Netflix. Mm-hmm. But you know, but Netflix kinda kinda started strict being restrictive with this stuff. And so basically they said to me in an email, Look mm-hmm. here, G, we'll give you an opportunity. You can share X amount of passwords as long as you pay a higher premium of your monthly cost. And you're okay with that? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I'm I'm okay with that. No ads because they they got the they got the one where you get one password and you can have ads for like six ninety nine a month. 
Oh, I didn't know that. That's so they're good. they're going to they're going to introduce ads now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hulu yeah. has done that for a long time, and yeah. I remember when Hulu. I think it was always ads, and then they said, "Oh, if you want to pay five dollars more, we can have no ads or whatever it was." And just out of principle, I kept the ads. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, "You're not going to squeeze any more money out of me. I don't have patience <laughs> enough for thirty seconds Dave, of ads." Dave, Colleen, I've been rocking with Netflix since the beginning. Since yeah. DVDs. Since DVDs. Oh, really? Right. I did you, the you, same. You get an, you get an order. You watch Watch it. You put it back in the mail. How many DVDs did you end up buying, though? Because you forgot to put them. None. None. No. 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 I was was broke, so (laughs) (laughs) no. That DVD is going Uh, back. I I did everything right, but uh, yeah, now I'm at Netflix. I'm okay with. uh, It needs to be restricted. I think Netflix is the number one go-to. So for for me, when I go to my television. I check Netflix first. Mm -hmm. Then it goes Netflix. Then I already know what's on HBO Max. Um, It goes Netflix. It goes Hulu. It goes Apple TV. You know what I mean? Prime is way down there for you. Because of the dashboard. Like Prime is all over. Prime Video is the Ross Dress for Less for streaming (laughs) services. Yes, their interface is frustrating. They have good deals. You just got to find it. Right, right. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah, with all the money that Bezos has, I'm surprised he hasn't put more time into Prime Video. The interface is just terrible. But but again, Netflix, I be chilling. I love that right there. The Netflix be be rocking. Yeah, we do Jeopardy first, then Netflix and everything else. TV, TV first. As long as you get Jeopardy on there. Why you got to make me, Colleen, and Sully feel this way? Oh, no, Sully's smart. So uh, I, thought we were all, I thought we were all well, sharing our TV Jeopardy. habits. Oh. Because he's smart. <laughs> no, I want to be smart. I'm trying to get smart. Oh, you are smart. Yeah. Oh, the TV show. Yeah. You watch yeah. that one. Yeah. What other Jeopardy is there? Oh, no, it's about the TV show. Get smart. Oh, oh no. Well, you remember that show? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Missed we're it all, by that much. We're all having a different conversation right. right now. No, I, I, I do have the, I do have Get Smart, but unfortunately, it's, it's all on VHS, so Aww. I've got no place to play it. So last night, I tried to watch Halloween Ends. Right? Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that's the one. That's a new one. Was that uh, streaming? It's streaming. It's on Peacock. That's definitely down there on the bottom. But anyway, it's on Peacock, and it's got Jamie Lee Curtis. And once again, it's another episode, another movie edition of Halloween, which, by the way, oh. is the greatest Halloween movie of all time. The greatest the, the, horror or horror. greatest Halloween? Oh, excuse me, horror. Okay. It, it just is. The whole... I mean, it's called Halloween. Yeah. Duh. Mm-hmm. And so every single year... I mean, how often do you watch Nightmare on Elm Street? I can't or Friday the 13th? I just can't. See, I'm the same as Colleen. Yeah. Ever since I saw The Fall of the House of Usher in 1965, mm-hmm. I think what it was. Now? The Fall of the House of Usher. Vincent Price? Was Scary. Ro- yeah, Vincent Price yeah. was like a Roger Corman... Mm. Mm. Yeah. Definitely B-list film with the binoculars, with the spikes in them. I said, oh, wow, I can't see that. Yeah. Mm. I had reoccurring nightmares where my Cabbage see? Patch doll was coming after me like Chucky. Chucky. And so I just, horror movies to me <laughs> yeah. are real life news coming out in movies. Like the horrors I've read in court documents mm-hmm. put into a movie. And so I just can't watch it. It's too much. Scariest movie of all time, honestly, for me. It's Children of the Corn. Mm-hmm. And we watched it at a friend's house. And then afterwards, we went out in his back. And he lives in a big prairie. And it was. Why did lo- you go and do like, that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Because. <laughs> Because I was because I was ten years old, and and don't you do all kinds of crazy stuff at sleepovers? Yeah. I want to talk to you about haunted houses too, but we're running out of time. Yeah, so we are. Maybe another day. See you guys. Jen Ursula, nine o'clock on Cairo News Radio.
This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And we have in our midst a recipient of the MacArthur Foundation grants, known as the Genius Grants. Her name is Ye Jing Choi. She is a University of Washington professor. She studies artificial intelligence. And I think it's fair to say this is pretty cutting-edge research because you are trying to teach these AI programs to have essentially common sense. So uh, describe your work in a way that we can we can all understand. I work on building AI systems that can better understand the human language and also align better with the human values. That's the ultimate goal. It's a long way to get there. And uh, one of the uh, important challenge to address is machines' lack of common sense knowledge and reasoning. Right. There have been some experiments where, for example, in facial recognition, it became uh, evident that the system was making mistakes based on race. It didn't really understand race very well. So when you encounter a problem like that, when you're programming these these machines, how do you debug it? Because it's not like you're writing individual lines of code anymore, right? You're, you're, you're feeding text and images into the computer, and uh, it's supposed to try to understand them. Right. So racial justice, this is um, somewhat beyond common sense and um, uh, another really important aspect that's lacking in today's AI is human values, norms and cultural norms and ethical norms. And that includes also uh, equity and uh, diversity. It's a big challenge. We need to somehow find a way to teach it in the way that we teach humans in that we don't just let children learn from anything in in the internet like reddit and youtube and you figure out what's right from wrong that's not how uh, we raise our children we tell them what's right from wrong we explain why something is wrong and so they really learn the concept from bottom up and i think that's what needs to be done for ai as well so in other words you have to carefully choose what you feed into the program exactly right the data currently the ai just consumes any data out there but that's not safe that's dangerous even for humans by the way <laughs> yes true so so have you figured out then a way to teach the program how to evaluate the data it's ingesting one way to make an analogy is to write textbook for machines to learn from in the way that humans also learn from textbook not just any random data on uh-huh. the internet and then that that textbook could consist of examples of what's right from wrong. For example, whether something is racially unfair remark or not. So you're, you've written textbooks for your AI algorithm? <laughs> Let's just say version 0.1. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, ongoing work. It's a 0.1 in the following sense. So what we did was we asked a lot of uh, crowd workers who are trained to do our job uh, for detecting uh, racism and sexism. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are cases when it's so obvious that it's a clear case of sexism and racism, but then there are cases where two people disagree depending on their upbringing or depending on their depth of understanding of the issue. Uh, someone might think that, oh, that's a freedom of a speech, while others think that that's a clear case of uh, microaggression. So, uh, in fact, humans, uh, humanities is still... Uh, struggle to understand the depth of this issue 
while we're also trying to teach AI. And so you can imagine that this textbook is not going to be perfect depending on who sees it. Uh, what that tells me is that an AI program is going to take on the personality and prejudices of its creator. That's right. So um, how do you control ideally, that? Ideally, the creator should be uh, not just one person, but a diverse set of people representing it. But even if so, it's going to reflect some biases. As somebody who's who's uh, immersed in this and who uh, has now received a very uh, prestigious recognition of of her work, are there areas that we should avoid handing over to AI? Are you aware of its limitations, and is there is there a warning that uh, should be given here? Yeah, um, I think ultimately we need to make AI not to be fully trusted. And it's very important that AI doesn't become some kind of authority deciding, telling people what to do. It, it shouldn't be portrayed as something conscious and then something smarter than everyone in the world or morally more correct than every in the world, everyone in the world. It should be designed so that it can interact with the humans safely mm-hmm. without uh, trying to become the authority over humans. So you don't believe that even a sophisticated AI program can be said to be uh, conscious in the way a, a human being is? It might be a, in part a philosophical question and then in part a technical question, because there are so many fundamental limitations with AI. It's a bit hard to believe that one day it's going to become so good so that we can actually technically think that um, it has consciousness. But philosophically also, it's not bio being. So I don't know, maybe I'm biased toward the bio beings in the end. <laughs> yeah, well, as well, you should be because we, we are all are bio beings. I mean, that, to me, to... yeah, there's something special about bio beings, even if we have a flaws. The trouble with AI, as I see it anyway, is that it has no concept of death, right? It doesn't it doesn't have a body. Uh, it doesn't have yeah. to breathe. It doesn't have to eat. It doesn't have to exercise. It can make these decisions without ever, ever feeling the consequences. So, uh, see, uh, I mean, I think you can program them all you want, but until it has that same feeling that its very existence could be at stake based on the decisions it makes, it, it can't possibly assign the proper importance to its decisions that human beings do. That's exactly right. And or is it just a human invention? Yeah, Jin Choi, University of Washington professor and recipient of the MacArthur Grant. Thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. 822, traffic in a moment. The Biden administration will allocate another $300 million to the new 988 hotline system, which is dedicated to mental health emergencies. Here's Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra. That becomes the glue that really brings together this notion of providing whole health to Americans. We are connecting the dots to make sure we give everyone whole health care. Senator Debbie Stabenow also had a remark about this. We are finally going to treat health care above the neck the same as health care below the neck. Not through grants that stop and start, but through health care. Calling 988 connects you to qualified community-based behavioral health clinics. You can ring my bell, ring bell. 
This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And here's Rachel Bell because uh, there's a milestone that we need to observe here involving uh, the scrunchie. Yeah, I'm offended that you didn't introduce me as Cairo's fashion expert. You usually give me an expert title, but I am Cairo's fashion expert. Mm -hmm. And I'm here to tell you that the woman who invented the scrunchie has died at 78 years old. Her name is Rami Hunt Revson. She first created the scrunchie in 1986. She wanted to come up with a hair tie that wasn't made of metal or plastic and she said she was like most of us inspired by the waistband of her sweatpants <laughs> who I hasn't was wondering, been I was, well, yeah because yes. that it's i mean who would think of that otherwise i know so of course if you are my age or colleen's age you know that they were super popular in the 80s and the early 90s and then we knew they fell out of fashion once they got slammed on sex in the city no woman who works at w magazine would be caught dead at a hip downtown restaurant wearing a scrunchie. One of my favorite episodes oh. <laughs> that almost ruined her relationship with Berger. Everybody knows he broke up with her on a post-it note anyway. Doesn't matter. Doesn't what? matter. Yeah, doesn't matter. Okay. So if this, you know, you know. If you know, you know. So scrunchies came back a few years ago to my horror, but to most people's delight. I loved it. I, I don't know. It just felt like it was time. And now that I know that the inventor is dead, I'm glad she got to see the Renaissance before she passed away. Wow. Someone went the to Europe last month. Renaissance. Quick, say croissant. <laughs> croissant. There we go. Uh, the scrunchie was named after her dog, whose name was actually Scoonchie. That didn't stick. I don't know how it turned into scrunchie, but you know, modern lexicon has well, its ways. Because the cloth is scrunched up just like it is uh, along the waistline of your, your sweatpants. sweatpants. By yeah. golly, that might be it. That mm. could be it. So uh, tonight, you know, Pour a little scrunchie out for Rami. I have so many now because they came back in fashion. And so the kids are all getting them at birthday parties mm. and stuff. So I rock the scrunchie yeah. thanks to my nine-year-old. Like next, Carrie's, the hairband. Ooh. Mm. Like no, Carrie, headbands are back. Like headbands Carrie said in that episode of Sex in the City, I still wear one when I'm, you know, going to wash my face. But in public... <laughs> I proudly wear it around my my wrist, showing off. I have a scrunchie. I give a quarter for every time I heard somebody talk about a scrunchie. (gasps) Look at this man. He's been in the business. He did a little transition. Yes. Yes. So the quarter is getting a makeover. Of course, there's like different quarters now. We have all different kinds. Like, you know, whose parents like mine were collecting. I'm going to get one from every state when they came out. I'm going to get that little holder. That's that's what we're doing. That's right. Um, But now we're going to see the first ever Asian American on the quarter. It's Anna Mae Wong. Um, She was a Hollywood film star. She's a daughter of immigrants. She grew up in New York City and she got her first movie role when she was 14 years old. Uh, She died in 1961, but the New York Times says she was known for her large, expressive eyes and flapper era styles. One of the most unforgettable figures of Hollywood's great days. I never heard of her. I haven't either. You hadn't either. So she has been forgotten, and that is why it's so important for her to put her on the quarter because they're saying that she was huge, but, you know, people forgot about her. And part of that is because, like you might expect, uh, she didn't get a lot of roles because of the color of her skin. In the New York Times, it says, Wong was widely considered to be one of the most beautiful women in Hollywood, but often could not play romantic leads because of laws prohibiting actors of different races from kissing each other on screen. Oh so she moved to Europe um, where she got greater opportunities. She did a lot of films there. She even played opposite Laurence Olivier. And she got her Hollywood star on the Walk of Fame. And this is interesting too. So that was in 1960. Lucy Liu, she has her star next to Anime Wong. That happened in 2019. She was only the second Asian American to have a Hall of Fame Hollywood star. So it took from 1960 to 2019 to give another Asian American actor 
a Hollywood star. Incredible. So I think that this is a great thing that she's yes. and she's it's a beautiful quote picture, whatever you call it, what they do on the quarter. Yeah. Like this. Um, she has an amazing manicure and like these long <laughs> beautiful fingers. I love it. That's, I love seeing more notice. women. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's not much on there. I mean, when is Harriet Tubman going to get on the $10 bill? Hmm? Okay, so this is very interesting. I First, I want to give you guys a quiz because, you know, I was about to say, oh, it's so important to have representation on the money. And then I'm like, I don't actually even know who's on the money. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm rich and famous and I swim in money like Scrooge McDuck every day. Oh. You better not be looking at money over there, Dave, because I'm quizzing you. <laughs> Seriously. So yes. do you know who's on the $10 bill? Hamilton. Right. So Alexander Hamilton is on the $10 bill. They were going to change that. Yeah. And then they didn't because in 2016, they changed their minds because of the musical Hamilton. I I read no. a million articles. It's true. I looked it up. Every yeah. article says the Treasury was like, mm, let's keep it. Kids are rapping at the dinner table about him. Yes. Well, true. So when's Harriet Tubman going to get on any bill? They were going to share it with Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, where, that was the deal. And it was the Trump the administration well, yeah. that put it on hold. She's going to be on the 20, but it's not happening till 2028. I don't know Come what takes on. so long. Yeah. And on the back of the 10, the plan is to put a montage of women. It's supposed to be suffragists, Lucretia Mott, Sojourner Truth, and Susan B. Anthony. They're going to be on the back of the 10. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.